I said, hey, would you like to preach? He's like, sure. What do you want me to preach about? And this was the only time I got back. Psalms 119. <laughs> like all 176 verses? Like, that's kind of a big chunk. But thankfully, Scott, you know, took up six verses last week. So <laughs> we only got 170 to go today. So we'll see how it goes. But uh, what we're talking about today has to do with rules. You know, and rules and laws are just a part of our lives. You know, they're a part of our existence. Whether we like them or not, you know, they provide structure. They even provide the freedom that we have. You know, without rules, without laws, you know, we'd have anarchy and chaos because we'd all be living by our own individual rules. It's much like as a parent, you provide rules for your children. You know, and part of that is for their own safety and your own sanity. (laughs) Now, I know with my oldest son, Dylan, like he wants to know where the rules are. Ever since he was little, he wanted to know where the rules are, and he would push that boundary the whole time. He never was really disobedient, but he just wanted to figure out every part of where that boundary was. And this was really evident when he was about four years old. I was at my sister's house for uh, my nephew's birthday party. And my sister's a great baker, and she made this beautiful cake for my nephew. And one thing you have to understand about Dylan is that my biggest fear when he was little was him getting locked in a candy store because... (laughs) I have no idea what to expect. The kid loved candy. There'd be this blob of of flesh on the floor slobbering with candy all over the place. So I knew when he sat down at the table and he saw this cake, his eyes got real big and he started reaching out. And I looked at him and said, Dylan, do not touch that cake. And so he sat back down, but I could see the wheels turning. So I went on and was talking to my family and, and next thing I know, I look over Dylan's on the table about two inches from the cake with his tongue reached as far out as he could because he wasn't going to touch the cake. He was going to lick the cake. You know, we all kind of interpret rules our own way. And that's kind of what we're talking about this morning is, is how good are you at following rules? Now, you don't have to answer. I don't want to know. And don't answer for someone else either. But I think there's three types of rule followers or, or three types of ways that we follow rules in our lives. And, and the first people are those rule followers. You know, they like the box. They like to live within the box. They want to know where the rules are, and they're comfortable within there. You know, a lot of military people are this way. They like the rules and the structure of the military. You know, I run this summer camp for boys and girls of fallen soldiers, and there's a group of guys that show up every year, and they're all pilots. They're F-16 pilots, Navy pilots, and a lot of them are flying commercial airlines right now. And you want your pilot to live in the box. Let me tell you, you want them to go through the checklist. I'm okay with that. But when they show up to camp, the first thing they want to know is, where's the itinerary? I want to know what we're doing when. And let me tell you, we have a great itinerary because it's done by another pilot. And they like those structures. The next group of people are the rule breakers. And now these are the guys that can't seem to follow the rules if they tried. You know, these are the people that... They look at rules and laws as some type of contest or dare. And we all probably know someone like this. They're probably in jail. <laughs> but we know people like this. They, they struggle with the rules. And then I think there's the majority of us, and we're, we're kind of the rule abiders. We understand the rules. We expect the rules. We don't always like them, but at least we follow them. You know, for me, this is kind of where I function. And when I show up to camp, I've gone all camps without even seeing an itinerary because I just go with the flow. And it drives the pilots crazy that I should know this stuff. But we all are, exist in those type of structures, I think, one way or the other. And it's important to understand this as we get back into Psalms 119. 
In this series, we're talking about speaking of God. Now, in this book, Psalms 119, the writer is a rule follower. They are someone who loves the rules. And many people think this might be Ezra, because if you look at the wording in Ezra, and a lot of what he talks about, he's a rule follower. He talks about being devoted himself to study, observance of the law, teaching the decrees of the law of Israel. This was a rule follower. They love the rules. Now, even when I read this passage, I have a tremendous amount of respect for this individual and how they view God's word. But what does it mean for me when I'm not really in that box, in that rules of structure? What does it mean to follow God's rules and laws that strictly in our day-to-day life? And this is what I want to look at this morning. Kind of continue on from Scott's message last week where he talked about looking at a foundation of trust. I want to look at this passage as the foundation of transformation and what we can learn from it. So if we look at Psalms 119, we're going to be looking at verses 33 through 48. Now in this it says, Teach me, O Lord, the ways of your statues, and I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant the promise that you may be feared. Turn away from the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts, and your righteousness gives me life. Let my steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever. I shall walk in the wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statues. Now, first off, there's a couple of things that stick out to this verse for me. And the first thing is, this is strange. Who talks this way? I mean, if you knew someone like this who was that in love with law, they would be socially awkward. They would not be the life of the party. But that's where this person is. I mean, can you imagine someone running down Elk Avenue just shouting the praises of Bozar? <laughs> they probably would not get very far. But this is kind of what he is. He loves the rules. The second thing I notice about this is it's a very action-oriented verse. There's a lot of action words in there. Look at this. Teach, give, observe, lead, incline, keep, turn, confirm. There's a lot of action-oriented words in here, which is an interesting way to look at the law because there's this juxtaposition between the law and truth and freedom that he's trying to convey. Where most of us look at the law from some type of restraint, We mainly look at the law from a limitation standpoint. This author is looking at it from the standpoint of freedom and what they gain through the law. And the last thing is what sticks out is is the passage is hope. My hope is in your rules. Who who talks like that? Has anyone said, oh, I just hope that they lower the speed limit on 135? I just really hope because that's where my hope lies. No, we don't talk this way. It's strange, but this is a new way of looking at the word because his foundation, his delight was found in God's word. So this morning, I want to look at three characteristics of this foundation because evidently I'm only supposed to do three. I think I tried to 
want to do four, but I think we're supposed to do three. So, so I look at the, the this law is the foundation of transformation. So the first thing I want you to understand when it comes to law is that we have a choice. And we have a choice, not only how we come to the law, but how we respond to the law. And that's what this author talks about in Psalms. He says, I delight in your law. My hope is in your law. He's the consummate follower, the consummate rule follower when it comes to the law. Now, to understand this a little better, I want to kind of take this to the New Testament to, to kind of unfold this a little bit, to see what it's like from two sides of the same coin. And I want to look at two groups of people who were around Jesus at the time and how they responded to the law. The first group of people were the Pharisees. These were the law holders. They were the people that knew all 613 Pharisaic laws by heart. They studied them since youth. They knew the 365 negative commands, and they knew the 248 positive commands. And they were ready and willing to let you know at any moment if you were breaking them. They loved the law. But then there was this other group of people that were oppressed by the law. The law was a source of shame for them. And three specifically is you have the woman at the well in John 4. You have the the woman who washed Jesus' feet in Luke 7. And then you have the woman who was almost stoned in John 8. The law for them was a source of shame. It was a source of being called out less than they were. They couldn't look at the law the same because, because of the oppression that it put upon them. Now, during these times, you don't know what was happening to these women, why they chose the pathways that they did. And most, a couple of them are prostitutes. One of them had five husbands and wasn't living with the one that, that the person she was living with wasn't her husband. We don't know if, if they lost their husband and you know, prostitution or, or where they went to make money was the only way that they could make money. We don't know their circumstances. They're sold into slavery, but they may not have had a lot of options. Yet, not only having to make these choices in life, they had to deal with the shame that came along with it. So it makes it interesting to look at these two groups of people. So first off, I kind of want to look at the Pharisees and understand how they viewed the law. So if, if you, you, don't, you can turn your Bibles, it's Luke seven thirty six. if you want to look at the story. We're not going to read it out loud. But this is a story where the Pharisee invited Jesus over for dinner. The Pharisee invited Jesus over for dinner. Think about that for a moment. Jesus Christ is in your house for dinner, sitting at your table. What do you cook? Because that's really what I want to know. <laughs> is he a barbecue guy? Because I'm thinking some smoke ribs, but I don't know. I think fish is pretentious, but that's just me. <laughs> but with Jesus Christ sitting at this table, sitting in front of him, he couldn't get over himself. He couldn't get over the law. He couldn't get over his own idea and expectations of who Jesus could be to make a simple choice to see him for who he really was. And he missed an opportunity to meet Christ, literally. In John 8, you have these groups of Pharisees that are willing to kill this woman to prove a point. They bring this woman in, and Jesus, with one line, diffuses a mob situation in front of these Pharisees. That's all he says is one line. Yeah, go ahead and stone her. Just... Whoever doesn't have any sin, throw that first stone. All the Pharisees could do was just drop their stones and silently walk away. Then you have this other scene just to show you the Pharisees in in Matthew 12. There's a man with a shriveled hand, but it's the Sabbath day. And they want to know what Jesus is going to do. 
So he heals this man. This man's hand, who was shriveled since birth, can now full function of his hand. And the only response you see in verse uh, 14 from the Pharisees is they went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Because healing someone is such a horrible thing. But it messed with their kingdoms. Jesus messed with their little fiefdoms. He messed with the rules. How dare he? He must be put to death. That's because the man-made rules that they had created. For the Pharisees, the rules had been made to serve them instead of them serving the rules. And thus they missed Jesus. Compare that to the women in our stories. In Luke 7, you have this woman who came to wash Jesus' feet in one of probably the boldest moves in mankind. This woman was what Luke calls uh, a woman of many sins, which we all have a lot of sins, but in that day that meant she was a prostitute. And she walked through this group of Pharisees to sit at Jesus' feet amongst the shame, amongst being called out, looked at, snared at, spit on, because the freedom she could find in Christ, the freedom she could find in the Word, much like the psalmist, was far greater than any shame she was ever going to put up with again. And the choice of crossing the street to wash Jesus' feet gave her the ability to hope as she never would before, to see a future she didn't know was there. Then you have the woman in John 4, the woman at the well. This woman is lowly of low. She was not only a Samaritan, which were considered dogs, she was a woman And she was a woman of many discretions. Her choice was very limited. She was frowned upon. She was looked upon. The law was used to shame her in the way that it doesn't affect many other people. But she took Jesus' words to heart and let them change her heart for what it is. Because she immediately leaves um, her spot and goes back and tells everyone what's happening. Because her life up to that point was irrelevant. It was meaningless. And this is the issue we run into when we look, don't make the choice of seeing Jesus for who he really is. We have to make the choice to, to come to the word, to not only read it, but, but to let it change ourselves and change how we see Christ. So we have to make a choice. The second thing we have to do is, is transformation itself. And, and we see this from, like I said, the, the 119 is a very action-oriented chapter, and the writer was in pursuit of God, his word. His knowledge had a purpose in it. And we see this in verses 39 and 40. It says, Help me abandon my shameful ways, for your regulations are good. I long to obey your commandments. Renew my life with your goodness. I think this is important to understand because I, I think we have an action-oriented God. You know, too many times in my life I've sat back and said, okay, God, I'm here. What do you want? You know, just just come and tell me. Just come and show me what you need. If you could bring back that whole writing on the wall thing, that'd be awesome. Just let me know. You could even text. I mean, we have much easier ways of doing this. But I think as I'm sitting there waiting, God's going, I'm waiting for you. I'm waiting for you to pursue me. I've given you the gifts. I've given you the strength. And I've given you the talents to come. 
God's looking for action-oriented individuals. And I think this is one of the biggest challenges for the Pharisees. It's because the law was such a wall to keep them in and to keep everyone else out. Well, I'm better than you. This makes me better than you. You need to stay away. When we go back to Luke 7, again, we see an individual who had the word made flesh in his house. And he didn't choose to pursue him. He didn't choose the transforming life that only comes through Jesus Christ. Because he couldn't get over the law. The Pharisees in John 8, again, were really to to stone this woman to death just to prove a point with Jesus. The woman's life was completely irrelevant and meaningless to them. And this is where we run into problems when we use God's law for knowledge and not transformation. When we come to God's word for knowledge, it puts an unnecessary rigidity on our lives. Because knowledge isn't always power, is it? I know I shouldn't eat that cheesecake or fast food, or that whole box of chocolates I gave my wife for Valentine's Day. I know my, it's not good for my waistline. No, it's not good for my marriage. But the knowledge of it doesn't make me change. It's when the knowledge is transformed into the heart that change actually happens. And this is really kind of the, the brilliance of Psalms 119 and what he's talking about. Because I I hear people a lot in church talking about, well, we need more meat. We need more Bible study. And by all means, you need to know God's word. You need to hide it in your heart like Scott has talked about the last couple of weeks. But you need to do it for transformation and not just knowledge. Because when I hear people say that, my feeble mind, all I'm thinking of is, I still haven't figured out love your neighbor. That's really what I'm stuck on is those three words. I could spend the rest of my life trying to figure that out and take it from my head to my heart. And that's why the word, God's word, is used for transformation and not just knowledge. Now, when we compare that knowledge to to these women's transformation, it's pretty amazing. When we look at Luke 7 and the scene that's happening here, this Pharisee invites Jesus over for dinner. And it would have been kind of a, a courtyard setting that they had, so kind of like a sidewalk cafe. Um, because the Pharisees really wanted everyone to know what they were doing. They wanted to see who was coming over and what they were eating and how nice they were dressed. But even though this Pharisee was a rule follower, the rules were only there to promote his cause. Because from the moment Jesus walked into this courtyard, he wasn't given a kiss, his feet weren't washed, and he wasn't given any perfume or olive oil for his head. See, the rules which he would have known were, were ridiculously thrown out because they didn't serve his purpose. And this woman would have probably been watching all this unfold, knowing who Jesus was, hearing him speak, even maybe being transformed already. But she's probably watching this from across the street all unfold. And I can't imagine what's going through her head. Should I go? You know those demons that we have in our head, those thoughts that we have? Will I be spit on? Will I be laughed at? Will I be kicked out? Will Jesus even accept me? But even with all that going on in her head, she crosses the street. She crosses the street and kneels at the feet of Jesus to give him the customary kiss, to wash his feet, and to give perfume to him. 
an amazingly bold act of transformation because the freedom she could find in the transforming life of Christ was far greater than the life she was living and the life that she saw ahead of her. And nothing, shame, disgrace, was going to stop her from getting to that point. That's the amazing thing about transformation. When we look at at the woman at the well, I think it's even a more amazing story. Because here's this woman, lowly of the low, a nobody in this town. And she comes out and gets well, gets water in the middle of the day. The only reason you would do that is because you're trying to avoid everybody. No one got water in the middle of the day. But she was tired of the stares from the women looking down upon her. Tired of the men looking at her in a lustful way. It's just easier to avoid than to engage. But when she gets to the well, Jesus starts speaking to her. Starts speaking some powerful, powerful words of truth to her. And she doesn't just listen. She transforms her life. And in that moment, she leaves the jug. She goes back to her town. And this is what I love about Jesus. Why would anyone listen to this woman? Why would anyone listen to what she has to say? Because she was changed. They are not only listening, the entire town came back to listen to Jesus and hear what he has to say. And I want you to think about this for a moment because this passage is one of the first recorded times that the gospel message of Jesus Christ was taken to someone else other than the Jews. And who did he use? A lowly, disgraced, shamed woman. Let me tell you, there's nothing going on in your life right now that Jesus can't overcome if you're willing to let him transform your life. So we have to kind of ask ourselves when we get to this situation and get to this place, do we really want to sit at the feet of Jesus and transform our lives? Or are we too upset because Christ isn't who we think he should be? And the Pharisees. The last point I want to look at is intentionality or intention. And we see this in verse 44 through 48. And it says, I will keep your law continually forever and ever. And I shall walk in a wide place for I've sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your statues. And this is interesting because the, psalm wants to, the psalmist wants to know God's law, to walk in wide spaces, to speak before kings, and meditate on the statues. Have you ever wanted to know the words so you could speak before royalty or the president or Congress? Have you ever wanted to know God's word and let it transform your heart so that you can enter into the transformation of other people? There's a novel way of looking at it. I'm just not reading it for my own purposes. I'm reading it for the transformation of others. Which brings us back to the Pharisees. They've created this whole life around the Hebrew law that has spanned generations. It's so tightly bound, they literally can't see the Christ, the living word that's standing in front of them. They're living a life like a puppet because they're tied to the strings of law, of expectation of who they're supposed to be. And they cannot change So their purpose is found in the law, not in the transformation through the law. The law, again, was meant to serve them, not they serve the law. 
Because think about it for a moment. What's the worst thing that Jesus did? I mean, really, he fed people, he healed them, he brought them back from the dead, he loved on them. Man, we should kill him. First thing that comes to my head. No, it's because of he was messing with their lives. He was messing with their rules, and they couldn't get over that. Because what's what happens when we choose to worship knowledge over truth? When that happens, we become a slave to the knowledge instead of being set free by the truth. Now, contrast with that, the women in our passages. Jesus did two things with each of these women. First thing he did is he called out their sins. You know, with the woman at the well, he said, you know, you have five husbands and the man you're living with now isn't your husband. With the woman at John 8 about to get stoned, he told her to go and sin no more. In Luke 7, when the, when the woman is at his feet, washing his feet, which is probably an awkward moment, he looks around and says, your sins are many, because he knows who she is. He calls out their sins, and I think there's a reason he does that with each one. Because they've hidden behind the shame of who they are for so long, but they never admitted it. They knew what they did. Everyone around them knew what they did, but they never admitted it. But when Jesus calls it out, they find freedom. They find freedom in laying their sins at the foot of the cross and being able to transform their lives in ways that they never saw before. It only happens through the transforming power of Christ. But what Jesus does as well, other than calling out his sins, is he doesn't judge them. And this is huge, because anyone on the face of the earth who walked this earth who could judge someone, it would have been Christ. But he chose not to, because it was irrelevant. The only people Jesus judged while he was on this earth were the religious leaders. The people who were supposed to have all the knowledge. But this is what happens when you choose by, to live by the transforming power of the law. Instead of letting the law serve you, is what the changes you can make. Can you imagine the transforming intentionality of the woman who is watching, washing Jesus' feet? At his feet, she took off an alabaster jar that was around her neck that would have been absolutely necessary for anyone in her trade. And she dumps a whole bottle of perfume on Jesus. Why? Because she would never need it again. She was walking out of that house a transformed individual who no longer had to be tied to her past. And that's the beautiful thing about this, is that when you find your hope in Christ, it opens up a whole new future you never saw before. The woman who who had many husbands could, could live a life of intentionality and purpose in Christ instead of man after man after man. The, the woman who's probably laying moments away from being stoned can get up and live a life of purpose instead of giving her body to any man who has money. See, when you put your transforming power in Christ into his word and let it change your life, you have a future opened up to you that you never knew was there. Because remember, when these women left Jesus, we don't know if they had money, if they had a job, if they had a place to live, but they saw a future they never saw before. And that is amazing. That's the transforming power of Christ. That's the glory of hope if you're willing to humbly come before God and let him change your life. To wrap this up, I'm going to reread a portion of the Psalms. 
And I don't want to have it up there, and I don't want you looking in your Bibles. As I read this, I want you to think about these women. I want you to, to get in your head the image of the woman that's in the dirt before Jesus, probably only wrapped in a towel because they drug her out to make a point. I want you to think of the woman sitting at the well with her jug and hearing about love for the first time. I want you to think about the woman at Jesus' feet, her, her hair undone because she was drying her feet, her Jesus' feet, tear-stained cheeks. I want you to think about these women as I read this passage again. Teach me your decrees, O Lord. I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding and I will obey your instructions. I will put them into practice with all my heart. Make me walk along the path of your commands, for that is where my happiness is found. Give me an eagerness for your laws rather than a love for money. Turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life through your word. Reassure me of your promise made to those who fear you. Listen to this. Help me abandon my shameful ways. For your regulations are good. I long to obey your commandments. Renew my life with your goodness. You know, as you leave here, I want to give you what I kind of call the Monday morning factor. So when you leave here, what does this really mean for you? As you go out into the community, go out into the world. And first and foremost, get into God's word. Get into his word for the purpose of transformation and not just knowledge. Secondly, I want you to think about, as I mentioned before, there is nothing in your life you've done, nothing you have been through that cannot be overcome. But you have to come. You have to come before Jesus because he is waiting for you. So my challenge for you this week is how can you read God's word to transform your life? Let's pray. Lord God, I just want to thank you for your word. I just want to thank you that we have these passages that, that truly make your word alive and living. And the understanding is really how we come before you. And I just pray, Lord, over everyone here as we leave this place, we have a greater understanding of how we need to come before you for the purpose of transformation. Let's transform our own hearts so we can transform the hearts of those around us and make this a place on fire for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Thank you and have a good week. Thank you.